Richard Rohr once said, all great spirituality is about letting go. Detachment is another one of those religious concepts that causes huge pushback from Christians and non-Christians alike. Christians can justify just about any sin and proof text a verse to claim that Jesus would agree. Meanwhile, atheists use detachment as another reason to deny what they call a smothering God and worship only at the altar of self. Consider four cultural truths. We live in an instant gratification society. We live in a society that values convenience over human life. We live in a society that values personal gratification over personal accountability. And we live in a society that excuses all of our desires as harmless and victimless. Now take those four statements and add the capital C CHURCH to the equation. We belong to an instant gratification church. We belong to a church that values convenience over human life. We belong to a church that values personal gratification over personal accountability. We belong to a church that excuses all of our desires as harmless and victimless. In each of these statements, I'm attributing them to the church, capital C Church, not the body of Christ. These are two very different things. They weren't meant to be, but they have been since the first person said Jesus would have, in quotes, and then inserted something clearly not biblically supported. For example, some current claims. Jesus would have been a social justice warrior. Jesus would have supported abortion. Jesus would have supported open borders. Jesus would have been for the Second Amendment. The truth is, Jesus wasn't interested in our social status or our cultural condition. He was only interested in our eternal souls. Matthew 7.13 states, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. Yet the church is full of denominations populated by people trying to widen the path to include their sin of choice. Detachment is not a punishment or a restriction made by a strict and unreasonable God. It is simply a defense mechanism that we should willingly use to build a wall between us and our sin. Welcome to another glorious day in God's creation. I am John Kowalski, and this is Rise Up, a podcast about life's challenges with solutions found in the Word of God.
This week on the podcast, we're talking about detachment. The desire for this study is to nurture the spirit of trust that is attached to God alone. The definition of detachment, uh, it means replacing the attachment to idolatrous relationships and self-serving goals and agendas for success, money, power, ego, productivity, and image with wholehearted attachment to and to and trust in God alone. I often say that if the only beneficiary of your acts of service is you, then it's not an act of service, nor is it kingdom or eternal work. Now, before you start throwing examples at me of, of how you benefiting yourself actually benefits others, let me clarify a bit. I understand that you might think I'm discounting things like personal Bible study or devotionals or, or other such social uh, solo efforts that help us to grow closer to God. I'm not. The benefit of you understanding God better, becoming closer to who he has made you to be, and acting that out in the world is the kingdom, right? That's who benefits. You benefit, sure, but the ultimate benefactor, if you share what you learn, is the kingdom. Uh, It'll have an eternal impact as long as you do live it out in the world where others can benefit from your effort. Turning on a light and hiding it under a basket does nothing for a world in desperate need of light. All that said, do a quick test. Ask yourself a few questions. What are you most looking forward to right now? Is it a vacation, a promotion, a new car, an Amazon purchase that hasn't arrived, a birthday, an anniversary? What is your personal identity? How do you define yourself? I know this might seem petty, but I sometimes wonder what people are thinking when they get vanity plates or put stickers on their cars. Uh, Is that how they want to be known? Is that really what they want the world to know about them? How about your social media persona? What does that tell the world about you and how you want to be known? If you died today, what would your gravestone say? How would you want to be remembered? Who people think you are is not always accurate, but if everyone thinks you're a very different person than you think you are, you might be the one being deceived. Some scriptures uh, that deal with this, Albert Calhoun in her study uh, used the message version for these scriptures. I am not a fan of the message paraphrase. Uh, I would rather ask the Holy Spirit to help me to grow and understand the Bible rather than rewrite the Bible to my level of understanding. There is no room for growth of understanding if it is written to my current or even below my current level of understanding. Uh, so I wrote, rewrote these verses, verses in the uh, ESV version for that reason. So uh, Mark 8, 34 and 35, uh, and calling to the crowd, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let them deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Luke 12:15 and he said to them 
Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Galatians uh, 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I added a couple verses to this to her list uh, that cite even Jesus' need to detach. In this case, he wasn't detaching from his sin, but maybe from the sins of others that he was constantly confronted with and healing. Also, he wasn't simply detaching. He was also using that time to connect with God, detaching from things and attaching to God. So Matthew 26, 36, uh, then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. In Luke 5, 15 and 16, it says, uh, but the news about Jesus spread all the more and the great crowds came to hear him and to be healed of their sickness, yet he frequently withdrew to the wilderness to pray. The practice of detachment includes a few things. Um, First of all, as Albert Calhoun uh, states in her study, uh, naming and confessing attachments that we've allowed to take priority over God, right? Um, I would say naming what you need to detach from can be powerful. I have seen, I've even seen people write down these issues, pray over them, and then burn them in a fire. Uh, Allowing others to lead and win can help us to detach. Uh, Letting go of image management, for example, not buying clothes just to stay flat fashionable, or, you know, propping yourself up as perfect on social media when life is life. Bad things happen, and when we pretend that they don't, in social media or anywhere in public, um, we're lying to the world and we're telling them that Christianity is some clean slate that we get. Well, it kind of is, but um, but that doesn't mean nothing bad will ever happen to us. We don't become a Christian and nobody we know ever dies again or gets sick. That's not how it works. We're still susceptible to the rule of life uh, while we're on this world. Um, the real rewards come in the next world, uh, and they need to know that. But how we handle adversity in this world can make all the difference between attracting people to the gospel and to Jesus and having them run screaming away from us because we're frauds. And lastly, honoring the freedom of others, refusing to manipulate and control in order to get what you want. That's a tough one because that's kind of what we do. Uh, God-given fruit in this study, what are we going to get out of it? Uh, Keeping company with Jesus in the letting go process. We'll talk a little bit more about that coming up. Uh, Freedom from an identity attached to image, possessions, achievements, and so on. Wouldn't it be freeing to just not have to put that fake face on every day? Quickness to repent and center your identity in Jesus, right? That's the first step to this whole process is repenting and surrendering. Freedom of addiction 
to your children, family, house, money, job, and so forth. Um, that doesn't mean that you don't still need those things, want those things, and desire those things in your life. But if God isn't first, then you're doing a disservice to everyone in your life. Less uh, needs for temporal security, more trust in God. Why are we so attached to things of this world when our lives are so short? We're not taking it with us. We know that. But yet we put so much emphasis on gathering this stuff, right? Um, living out your true self in Christ. I was happy to see that Albert Calhoun included the in Christ addition to that statement, true, true self, right? Culture and society get so caught up in self that we begin to rewrite the world in our image. That's how we end up with all of this identity confusion and denial. Tying our true self to our image in Christ is the appropriate posture for a Christian. Putting self above Christ is not. Next, she mentions uh, dying to self and losing your life to find it. Realizing that following Jesus includes descent, loss, and death. And to live in a way that finds God in the midst of all of these things. There are so many people in the world who believe that if there is a God, then there would be no loss, suffering, or death. I don't understand how anyone would consider that a life by any definition. Imagine an existence where all of your choices had no ramifications for you or anyone else. There would be no point for caring for others because nothing you could do would have any effect on you or them. I have no idea what society without free will would look like, but it certainly would be pointless and monotonous. And then finally, learning the lessons of letting go so that you will be prepared for the final letting go of death. She goes on to explain what detachment meant or means in her life. She talks about uh, that, that there was nothing Jesus was more attached to than his father God, right? God was the center of uh, Jesus' life. He intentionally laid aside an identity built on being relevant, revered, and upwardly mobile. He died to these things and fixed his eyes on what was unseen. See uh, 2 Corinthians 4.18. Jesus was detached from making a name for himself that brought human applause. He embraced his humanness and staked his ministry on being God's beloved son, whether or not anyone responded. Jesus knows all about the discipline of detachment. He made the harrowing descent that relinquished heavenly uh, privileges for a life of human limitations. The second person of the Holy Trinity, Jesus, exchanged heaven for earth, power for weakness, glory for obedience and suffering, success in the human eye for faithfulness in the eyes of God, and life for death. Albert Calhoun goes on to mention that 
part of the liturgy for many churches includes the words, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. This threefold pattern known as the Pascal mystery describes how uh, the true transformation is found on the far side of detachment, relinquishment, and letting go, right? Christ died, Christ rose, Christ will come again, right? It's that same process of detachment. Richard Rohr uh, wrote in Everything Belongs that Jesus crucified and resurrected is the whole pattern revealed, named, affected, and promised for our own lives. A look at the cross makes this abundantly clear, yet we often refuse relinquishment and remain blind to our attachments. Relinquishment extends into the core of our identities, securities, and addictions and says, for the love of Jesus, I will let go. As Jesus apprentices, we are to detach from the accolades of the world and receive ourselves as God's beloved. Detachment finds its true home in attachment to Jesus only. In my own life, meaning Albert Calhoun's life, this sort of detachment has touched me in simple and practical ways. Uh, leaving the sea, the friends, the job, the church, the roots, to follow Jesus to a new land came with losses and eventually a renewed sense of where my attachment lies. I'm going to leave it there for just a minute and take a quick break. And I will be right back with some reflection questions uh, about this study. All right, I'm back and uh, we're talking about detachment. Um, we talked a little bit about what it is, defined it, and did all that. Now let's talk about uh, some reflection questions. Albert Calhoun first asked, how do you handle failures and weakness, suffering and loss? What does this tell you about how you attach and adapt to the world's view of success, power, and self-worth? In the past, I handled failure, suffering, and loss very poorly. I raged against my luck or lack of luck. I got very angry. Then I would put together a solution that was well thought out, actionable, and attainable. I would then solve the problem, dealing with any setbacks that came along or subsequent issues much the same way as the initial problem. I fooled myself into thinking I could carry it on my own. When in reality, I was forcing everyone around me to carry part of it as my anger spilled out everywhere. I am not perfect even now. My initial reaction to problems is no longer anger. I still go into solution mode, but I force myself to slow down, pray about it, and derive a positive solution. I know I'm not perfect. And People who know me best can tell the difference between the, quote, me with a problem and the, quote, me at peace. Uh, I hope that people in the world never see me anxious because I know that God will get me through anything and be my, by my side the entire way. My fear is that people who don't know me well might see my peace in tough situations as indifference. 
I feel things very deeply. I simply trust God that the lesson brought by the storm is needed for my growth, and I'm okay with going through that storm to get there. As far as the world's view of success, power, and self-worth, that's simply not me. And I'll explain my view on each. I consider the world's view of success to be a lie. When people need a win, our society moves the goalposts instead of encouraging them to grow and improve. Critical theory is a good example of this. When a system is considered to be unfair, whatever system that may be, we don't correct the system. We don't correct the people that make up that system. We're to dismantle that system completely and create a new system with the oppressed on the top. So basically, we flip it. We have all the same people, all the same thought processes, and we just oppress someone else. This solves nothing, and it just creates new victims. To the world, success is a lie you tell on social media. The perfect meal, the perfect job, the perfect car, home, life, except none of it's real. The world's view of power, it's another lie. The people with power pretend that they don't have it so that they can fool the masses into thinking they're side by side with them in their suffering and need. A good example is Bernie Sanders, okay? I don't, I don't care what your politics are, um, but this guy is a perfect example of the world's view of power, right? He rages against the rich and capitalism while amassing millions. He has six houses, each worth more than the average blue-collar worker makes in five years. Realistically, he's just a prime example of the larger problem of corruption in our government, they're gearing up to send 87,000 new IRS agents out to shake loose every dime from our working class while they mysteriously become multi-millionaires working six-figure civil service jobs and living like Hollywood stars. Finally, the world's view of self-worth is a travesty. I have no interest in the religion of self that groups like atheists, anti-theists, progressive Christians, critical race theory advocates, or social justice warriors seem so obsessed by. The denial of self is creating an angry, mutilated, sterilized, hopeless future generation seeking fulfillment in the lie that the grass is greener on the other side of whatever fence they put themselves on. Instead of helping children navigate and find answers to their questions, society convinces them that their every whim is reality and encourages them to the most devastating solutions without ever bothering to tell them the reality of the future ramifications of those decisions. I have no use for the world's view of success, power, or self-worth. They are all lies meant to placate the masses so the elites can keep all the real success, power, and worth to themselves. To me, success, power, and identity are all in Christ. All my righteousness is like filthy rags. Isaiah 64.6
Number two, what are some specific ways in which mistakes and failure have worked for your good? For me, the many mistakes that led me to the truth that I could no longer navigate navigate life on my own. That's what got me there, right? In my life. My way was a one-way trip to failure, anger, and hopelessness. When my life hit bottom, I felt alone on the planet. I realized what was missing. I started to go to church. Looking back, I think I went at first to rage at God for allowing the shambles I had made of my life. Uh, It didn't take long to hear how stupid that accusation sounded. I made the decisions. I chose the paths. I ignored God in my life. I failed on my own time after time. But it was God's fault somehow. I was everything that was wrong with the world. But I finally, I had finally seen it. It was like a blindfold fell from my eyes. I could see everything that was wrong with my life was in me. It still is, even today. But the difference is, I am forgiven. With the power of the Holy Spirit inside me, I'm strong enough to fight my basis instincts. Admitting my failures brought me the strength to surrender my life to Jesus. Number three. When loss has made God more real to you. There have been a few specific times in my life before becoming a Christian when I have suffered loss that made me question God and even run from him. There was a specific loss surrounding my divorce that brought me closer to God. I have talked about this a lot, so I'm not going to relive that again here. Suffice it to say that when I surrendered my failure to God and accepted the truth of my responsibility for my suffering, I was a changed man, a new creation, so to speak. Uh, Since then, I have suffered setbacks and losses, but I am 100% confident that I will get through them and that God is with me along the entire way. I'd like to share with you here to answer this question a little more, a little differently, um, a tale of two funerals. Um, to illustrate the difference between knowing Jesus in loss and not knowing him. A few years ago, a co-worker's wife lost her long battle with cancer in the same week as a friend from our church died in a car accident. Wendy and I uh, went to both funerals within a week. Uh, The first was a Jewish funeral. It was traditional, ordered, and sad, as you might expect. Every speaker wept for the loss of their friend and focused on her life and accomplishments. They told stories of her kindness and compassion. They all said goodbye as if there were no expectation of reuniting in heaven. The other woman was a Christian. Her parents and siblings and kids, all Christians. The small chapel uh, that that held her funeral was overflowing with her church family. This was by no means a solemn and depressing affair. It felt more like a celebration of her life and a going-away party celebrating her return home to sit by our king in comfort and peace. There was a clear expectation that they would see her again and that, the, and that though they would mourn her uh, losing her on this world, uh, they were happy that her struggles were now over. Uh, 
there may have even been a bit of envy that she would meet Jesus and would still, uh, and that we would still be here to anticipate that day in our lives. Uh, the two funerals were like night and day. One was loss and darkness in mourning, and the other was joy and celebration in mourning. Number four, what about yourself are you most attached to? Um, my arch enemy is my pride. It keeps me thinking that everything should be smooth and go my way. It tells me that I should be angry when it doesn't. Uh, I know it sounds silly and childish. I agree. And I fight it with everything that I have. And I still fall short more often than I'd like. What helps me is keeping my mind occupied on eternal things and being especially on guard when I am tired or feeling weak. I found an article uh, on a website, and I'll link it in the show notes as I always do. Um, it is uh, by uh, Chris Valaton. It's called Eight Things to Do When Spiritual Warfare Gets Real. Uh, and it's it's from his website. It, as I said, it's linked in the show notes. Um, but let me go through them with you quickly. Number one, don't be afraid, but instead remember the Lord. Uh, he cites Nehemiah 4.14 here. When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. End quote. So, Trust in the Lord is our greatest weapon. We worry most when we are unsure of the outcome. Can we trust God that while we may suffer some loss in the storm, that we will emerge better, stronger, and more faithful in the end? I hope so. Number two, remember the testimonies in your life. he says there are weapons of warfare. Fill yourself with faith by holding on to testimonies from your life and other people's lives. Uh, Revelation 19.10 says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, meaning if God's done it before, he can and will do it again. End quote. Does your life and your testimony speak to the faithfulness of God? Reflect on past suffering and storms in your life. Did you emerge victorious? Did you learn a valuable lesson? Do you still feel the loss now in the same way that you did then? If you need to be fueled and inspired, ask someone for their testimony. I am always amazed by the stories that I'm told. It's hard to miss the glory of what God is up to in so many lives. Number three, remember the work you are doing is noble. Uh, Nehemiah 6.3 is quoted here. Um, So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? End quote. When you tell God, here I am, God, send me. You become more than just a person. You become an ambassador for his kingdom. We are then working in his name for his glory and not our own. That should give us some comfort if we allow it to. And don't try to put ourselves in front of the mission. 
it is not easy because it's completely counter to our sin nature. Number four, remember who you are. The enemy will try to convince you that you're defeated, but the truth is that you're a victor. He'll try to convince you that you're the worst person in the world, but the truth is you're the apple of God's eye, destined to change the world. Speak truth about who you are over yourself with every assault that comes your way. End quote. I think when he says, remember who you are, he means your identity in Christ. He may have been better off saying that we should remember whose we are. We are chosen by name by our king. We weren't inherited from a previous king. We were personally chosen and adopted. That fact is often overlooked in our bustling lives. We think we found Jesus. We didn't. We were called and we accepted. Our king sacrificed himself for each of us personally. Imagine Jesus on the cross thinking, Wendy, yep, I'll die for her. John, yep, I'll die for my son. It's overwhelming. Number five, trust Jesus to keep you. Jude 24 says, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. End quote. Has Jesus ever let you down? Really? Think about it. Whose decisions put you in the storm? Maybe they weren't yours, but they certainly weren't Jesus' fault. Sometimes decisions made by others, even strangers, can cause problems in our lives. Um, But that's not on Jesus. That's on us. Because we do it, and it affects others too. Number six, release the peace within you through singing and proclaiming Jesus. Um, He he says, uh, remember the freedom within you will become the freedom around you. Acts 16.25 says, But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. End quote. Connect often with Jesus through worship and prayer. Consistent connection is a great way to keep doubt, temptation, uh, from gaining a foothold. Number seven, no matter what, nothing can separate you from God's love, not even the valley. Uh, Romans 8, 38 and 39 says, And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, angels or demons, fear, n- neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. End quote. There is absolutely nothing that needs to be added there. Uh, Number eight, remember that God leaves you and he's walking through the valley with you. Uh, Psalm 23, 4 speaks to this. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. End quote. This 
fact gives me great comfort on a daily basis. I used to think of Jesus waiting for me at the finish line with a hug and a well done, good and faithful son. And and that was reassuring. But and, and I don't really remember where I learned that my belief was wrong. It may have been at one of the our church's growth classes. Um, I, I vaguely remember the instructor uh, explaining that Jesus is with us every step of the way. We have unlimited access to him directly through the Holy Spirit within us. Uh, I'm sorry, directly and through the Holy Spirit within us. Uh, we act like we are on our own with God waiting for us to make it to him uh, when in reality the victory is already won and he's walking along beside us uh, used by his strength so that we can get to the goal. I'm going to take one more quick break and then we'll finish up. All right, we left off on question number five, reflection question five. Uh, imagine a testimonial dinner in your honor. What would you like people to say about you? Um, my mother once said that when people look at her, she wants them to see Jesus. I haven't thought about myself in the same way since she said that to me. I don't need or want accolades or glory. I want all glory for anything I do in his name to go to Jesus, not me. That said, I don't even want a testimonial dinner. I suppose someone could eulogize me after my passing, uh, but I have little control of that and I will not be in attendance. Uh, if they do, I hope they remember me fondly but saw me for what I did for others and not for some temporal identity choices. I went to college, I served my country, I've been a husband, a father, a son, I have hobbies, I have favorite sports teams. None of those matter beyond the scope of my life. My identity is in Christ, not in temporal things. I have done with that I've done with my life, I suppose my ultimate goal for a testimonial would be found in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And someone would say something like, John's life was lived in a constant effort to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. End quote. I have a lot of work to do to attain that goal. Some spiritual exercises uh, that we can use to uh, attain these goals. Uh, take an attachment first. Take an attachment inventory. Write a list of the defense mechanisms that you're attached to. Some examples might be sarcasm, temper tantrums, aloofness, clowning around. Ask God to make you aware of the times you instinctively move to your defensive response. Consider what seems to trigger your response. What response would you cultivate instead? Share your observations with a trusted friend, asking them to pray with you. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you change your attachment to these behavioral patterns. Number two, practice letting go by giving away something you're attached to money, time, possessions. Notice the feelings that arise 
in you when you think of giving something away. Spend time talking to God about how attached you are to your things. Uh, three, walk through your home or office. In your mind's eye, give it all to God. Tell him that you could live without these things that you see. What is that time of prayer like for you? Number four, recognize your attachment to labels. How do you label and judge people? How attached are you to your professional label? Where do professional labels get in the way of really knowing others? How might you enter a conversation without using the question, what do you do as a starter? Spend some time coming up with questions that lead you to a deeper appreciation of people. Number five, where in your life do you need Christ's spirit of detachment? Where do you need grace to pray, not my will, but yours be done? Talk to God about what it means to you to pray this sort of prayer. How does praying this prayer make the reality of Jesus' life touch your own? And number six, ask God to give you an opportunity to become more detached from secondary things. Share your car, your home, your second home, your time, your expertise with someone this week. I'm going to repeat a statement that I made in the intro because I think it's relevant and it's really my ultimate finding for this entire study. And it's that detachment is not a punishment or a restriction made by a strict and unreasonable God. It is simply a defense mechanism that we should willingly use to build a wall between us and our sin nature. I'm going to go right into that last segment, uh, Awake But Not Woke. Uh, And I only have a few uh, stories to share with you this week. Uh, First of all, the Federalist reported, and this is the headline, Joe Scarborough, colon, Jesus never said anything about killing children. MSNBC talking head and admitted backsliding Southern Baptist said live and tweeted that Jesus supported abortion. Uh, And his actual uh, tweet was that Jesus never once talked about abortion, and it was happening back in ancient times, and it was happening during his time. Never once mentioned it. For people perverting the gospel of Jesus Christ down to one issue, it's heresy. So, Backsliding Southern Baptist, which he called himself, is now telling us what heresy is. Um, I guess the lapsed Baptist crowd doesn't understand the Bible any better than Pelosi, Biden, and the pretend Catholic crowd. Uh, How about these scriptural gems? Among many, I probably could have read half the Bible on this. Um, Deuteronomy 24.16, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to the death to, for his own sin. Uh, Deuteronomy 20, 17 and 18, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Je- Jebusites 
uh, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. And then Jeremiah 32, uh, 35, they built high places for Baal in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, to sacrifice their sons and daughters to Molech. Though I never commanded, nor did it enter my mind, that they should do such a detestable thing, and so make Judah sin. The point here is that God was very clear about punishing the unrighteous acts of these false God-worshipping murderers. They were killing their children, and it's why God gave their land to the Israelites and told the Israelites to decimate them. They were unredeemable. And God knows, right? When he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, He said, if even one was righteous, he wouldn't destroy the city. So they weren't. You might be thinking that these scriptures are all from the Old Testament, and that's a different covenant. And you're right, it is. But uh, you might also argue that the covenant was made with the Israelites and has no bearing on us. First, Jesus is God. So, same God. Second, Jesus didn't lower the bar when he spoke the Sermon on the Mount. He raised the bar for his followers. Jesus clearly said that he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill it. And that was Matthew 5.17. My second uh, article is uh, Newsweek.com. Uh, a podcast at the the uh, headline is podcast group slammed over apology for Ben Shapiro presence on August 25th podcast movement was in the midst of a conference for podcasters the daily wire which is the number 6 ranked uh, ranked podcast company uh, in the US uh, had paid for a spot as you would expect right ben shapiro who's podcast is ranked, I think, number 39 overall on Apple Podcasts, um, decided to make an appearance with his company, which caused the hosts of the conference to go into full weighted blanket mode uh, to comfort their woke members. They tweeted, hi folks, we owe you an apology before sessions kick off for the day. Yesterday afternoon, Ben Shapiro briefly visited PM22 Expo area near the Daily Wire booth. Though he was not registered or expected, we take full responsibility for the harm done by his presence. Uh, End quote. They later added, and I'm quoting again, those of you who called this unacceptable are right. In nine wonderful years of growing and celebrating this medium, podcast movement has made mistakes. The pain caused by this one will always stick with us. We promise that the sponsors will be more carefully considered moving forward. End quote. So what's the message here? That Shapiro, because he doesn't cave into the woke agenda, should not have a presence at all? 
right? Should he be eliminated from the face of the planet so that his presence doesn't offend the woke crowd? Uh, that his company should be silenced for a dissenting opinion? Uh, wasn't this company founded on dissenting opinions? In case you missed this fact, in what passes for history class these days, the abolition of slavery was a dissenting opinion at one time. I'll stop short of calling for the cancellation of podcast movement as an organization. Their employees shouldn't suffer the consequences of their leadership, but I definitely think their leadership should be removed. This last one uh, is pulled directly from the transcript of President's speech uh, to the nation on Labor Day, in case you missed it. Um, it was horrific. Uh, even the, the visuals were horrific. Um, it brought to mind many uh, campaign promises that he made to bring unity to the country that he claimed was divided by his predecessor. Instead, he attacked and divided, stating, and I'm quoting, Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of the republic. I'm, I'm very, very impressed that he called it a republic. He usually calls it a democracy, which it is not. It is a constitutional republic. So good job, Joe. Uh, his claims uh, against MAGA Republicans are that they don't respect the Constitution, that they don't believe in the rule of law, that they don't recognize the will of the people, that they refuse to accept the results of a free election, and that they're determined to take America back to a time where there is no right to choose, no right to privacy, no right to contraception, and no right to marry who you love. I'm going to deal with each one of these using only the words of key Democrats. So we don't respect the, uh, or MAGA Republicans, which I wouldn't consider myself one. I'm a very conservative uh, politically, but I stopped being a Republican quite a while ago when Republicans, uh, politicians stopped being Republicans. Um, so anyway, MAGA Republicans don't respect the Constitution. Chuck Schumer, Democratic senator, said before the nomination of Amy Coney uh, Barrett, uh, these right-wing judges don't think for themselves, they just do whatever the Constitution says. Senator Cory Booker, Democrat, says, we're sick and tired of the Constitution sitting in the National Archives manipulating everything we do. Uh, the best one comes from Senator Elizabeth Warren, Democrat, stating, we need judges to be advocates of progressive laws, not people who will bow down to the whims of the Constitution, pitting its extremist values of freedom of speech and freedom of religion against our agenda. Yeah. Who doesn't respect the Constitution again? Uh, next, he said that MAGA Republicans don't believe in the rule of law. Uh, Vice President Harris promoted a Minnesota bail fund that was used to release violent protesters throughout 2020 and 2021, several of whom reoffended, and at least one committed a murder. Democrat politicians call for no cash bail, defunding police, and releasing many violent criminals due to jail overcrowding. 
I'll give you some examples. The man who attempted to kill a New York Republican gubernatorial candidate was released with no bond. An Illinois law that has already been passed and will go into effect in 2023 will remove bail for crimes including robbery, drug-induced homicide, kidnapping, arson, aggravated battery, and second-degree murder. No bail. So, again, who doesn't believe in the rule of law? Because all of those people and places that I mentioned are Democrat-run. Uh, next, MAGA Republicans don't recognize the will of the people. Uh, Biden has showed that he does understand the will of the people. He just doesn't respect it. Why else would he bypass the legislative branch, which his party has the majority in both houses right now, so there's no need to do it, and enact an average of 60 executive orders per year that he's been in office through August 20th of this year? He knows that if his party representatives continue to vote for these destructive and dangerous policies, the people will vote them out. So he uses executive orders to shield them while still getting his agenda through. It helps that the liberal media ref refuses to report on these executive orders, allowing them to go into effect largely unnoticed and with little pushback. Um, MAGA Republicans uh, refused to accept the results of a free election. We found a lot of fraud in the last election, and whether or not you believe that it could have changed the overall outcome of the election, it, it's irrelevant. All right, let's look at um, Democrats' usual uh, tactic, right? They forget their own participation in their accusations. Dems screamed fraud in 2000, Gore versus Bush, uh, 2004, Kerry versus Bush, and 2016, Clinton versus Trump elections. Do you see the common denominator? They were the last three times Republicans won presidential elections. Yet, to call an election into question now is dangerous and un-American because can, uh, when conservatives did it in 2020. Uh, and lastly, uh, they're determined, uh, MAGA Republicans are determined to take America back to a time where there is no right to choose, no right to privacy, no right to contraception, and no right to marry who you love. Literally no one has said anything about repealing same-sex marriage, right? Have you heard it? Conservatives would rather women use contraception than murder their babies in utero. I'm pretty sure. Uh, I have no idea what they mean by the right to privacy, but it seems unsurprisingly disingenuous coming from a party whose leftist media attack dogs like the Washington Post's Taylor Lorenz pride themselves on doxing conservative voices. So once again, Everything they accuse their, their adversaries of doing is their playbook. So use it for what you will. Uh, it's out there for you. I, I linked, uh, um, I linked all of those articles in my show notes so that you can go directly to those articles. Find other articles. Um, these were not hard to find. 
uh, resources on detachment dark night of the soul by saint john of the cross everything belongs to uh, by richard Rohr. uh the lazarus life by stephen w smith and when i lay my isaac down a dvd by carol kent um the references as i said it will be linked in the show notes and uh we'll see i don't know what my topic will be next week uh or a couple weeks uh that remains to be seen but uh i'm sure it'll be worth hearing at least i hope it will be until then i love you guys i'll be praying for you i hope you'll be praying for me uh rise up